everybody. Welcome very much to LSE and to the LSE Literary Festival. Uh, this is a panel that is being organized by the Faroj Lanji Africa Center and Africa Talks. And it is a huge pleasure to welcome you all here. Uh, I'm Laura Mann. I'm an assistant professor in the International Development Department. I teach a course on African development. And uh, most of the time I have to read sort of very boring academic texts. So it's a real pleasure to hear about African fiction, African literature. Um, and this is actually the second year we've had a panel at the Literary Festival. Last year we had uh, three authors, uh, Leila Adenle, uh, Chibono Onuzo, and Jennifer Mukumbi. Um, and so I'm really excited to have the second year. I'm hoping it will become a tradition. Um, so I don't want to take up too much time. I'm going to introduce our chair. Uh, Bo Bola Masura, who's a, a journalist from the BBC World Service. She's been uh, covering African countries and African culture and politics for the last 20 years. So she's an ideal person to chair the event um, and to introduce our speakers. So let's give her a round of applause. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this lecture, African Revolutions from the Streets to the Written Word, which is hosted by the Filoz Lalji Center for Africa here at the LSC. Uh, I am, as uh, was just said, Bola Mosuro, and I am honored, I have to say, to be chairing uh, this event with three very powerful writers from the continent, um, Samar Samir Megzani, Nia Yikwe Parks, and as we can see on Skype, uh, Yasmin El Rashidi. Hello, Yasmin. I hope you can hear us properly. Okay, wonderful. So there might be a bit of delayed reaction, so we'll take that into account um, both during your presentation and later on when there are questions, which I'll come to um, shortly. Uh, but maybe I can start with introducing uh, our panel of speakers, because Samir, uh, Samar Samir Megzani is a Tunisian writer and activist studying for her doctorate uh, at Media Studies at Cambridge University and has received many, many honours for her writings, which uh, have also won her the accolade of being the youngest writer in the world. This was in 2000, even being entered into the Guinness Book of World Records twice, I believe, uh, because the other accolade was as the most prolific writer in the world. Uh, this was in 2002. Um, she's written over 100 short stories for children and published 14 books. And you are how old? 28. Okay. <laughs> um, from an early age, he challenged the notion that young people should be seen and not heard. Last year, she was the keynote speaker at the UN's Economic and Social Council's Youth Forum. Samar also is of Iraqi heritage and was classified as one of the most influential Arab women in 2013 and one of the most important young leaders in the Arab region in 2012. So, thank you, Nii Ayikwe Parks is a novelist and poet and author of the fictional work Tale of the Bluebird, which I guess you could say is a novel touching on the, the kind of politics of power in Ghana. Um, it's been translated into Dutch, German, Spanish, French, Italian, Catalan and Japanese. Now originally it was short, uh, shortlisted for the 2010 Commonwealth Prize, and the book has gone on to win a string of literary prizes. There are so many that I'm sorry I didn't list them, so you can tell okay. us which ones a bit later. Now, this centers around a young forensic detective and an older protagonist who um, tried to solve a murder mystery, but it's in a village which uh, seems to be 
seemingly cut off from the kind of uh, bureaucratic institutions and structures elsewhere in Ghana. Uh, Beni isn't just a novelist. He actually first made his name and really hit the headlines, if you like, um, as an African literary figure, as a poet. Um, and I, we were talking in the earlier, that the first time I came across him was when um, Nee's poems were featured on, uh, you know, the tube, uh, poems on the Underground, and that's when I first uh, came into contact with Ni many years ago. Um, in 2014, Ni was named as one of Africa's 39 most promising authors of the new generation, and he was recently appointed director of the soon-to-be-inaugurated Amata Aidu Center for Creative Writing, and that's at the African University College of Communication in Accra, which is the first of its kind in West Africa. And finally, sitting very patiently, uh, listening to us, uh, but joining us via Skype is Yasmin El-Rashidi, a native of Cairo, who's an activist and author of The Battle for Egypt, Dispatches from the Revolution, which uh, gave testimonies and eyewitness accounts of the dramatic events which unfolded in 2011, including the scenes witnessed in Tahrir Square and the major upheavals and ultimate revolution uh, leading to the toppling of the Mubarak regime. Uh, Yasmin is also the editor of the Arts and Quarterly um, uh, publication, Bidong, uh, did I pronounce that correctly, Yasmin? Hopefully I did. Um, Yasmin is also the author of the highly acclaimed novel Chronicle of a Last Summer, which charts the political awakening of uh, the central character who we meet as a six-year-old girl in 1984, then as a college student in 1998, and as an adult in 2014. And I have to say, Yasmin is uh, really sought after both in the UK, in Cairo, and in America, where she often makes a lot of appearances. So I think we're very um, uh, lucky to actually have her on the panel to have been able to uh, secure her uh, to take part today. So welcome, Yasmin. Now, the picture looks frozen, but the picture does look frozen, but I think you can still hear in the background. So please don't be alarmed, especially later on when there's a question and answer session um, that, you know, we'll obviously take that into account if the line... Uh, staggers or if there are problems with it. Um, now our panellists are going to be exploring the impact of political realities such as the Arrow Spring and the effect it's had on literature. Um, for those of you who are Twitter users um, in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE LitFest. Um, please though, can you remember to put your phones on silent so that um, we have no buzzing kind of interrupting the proceedings uh, which might put our speakers off. Um, today's event is also being recorded um, and will hopefully be made available as a podcast as subject to no technical difficulties. Um, as usual after the lecture there will be a chance as I said for you to put your questions to all the authors um, and there will also be a book signing taking place on the ground floor of this building after the lecture, and I believe um, both of you have copies of your book yeah. to sign? So, yeah. Okay. Uh, so copies will also be on sale um, outside the venue. Um, so first, uh, maybe as a joint uh, event, can I ask you if you can welcome all three of our, of our authors? <laughs> so maybe can I, um, we can start with you, if you wouldn't mind starting... Okay, <laughs> sure. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me uh, here today. I'm very happy and honoured to be here. Um, but I'm going to start with some destruction, actually, of the question of today's panel. 
because I think this is based on few false premises uh, that we need to look more into and perhaps dismiss before we move on. Um, first of all, I think the description of the new literary trend as science fiction literature emerging in Arab Spring countries uh, reminds me of the way we tagged post-Soviet Union literature um, with a similar description and interpreted it as a work of social criticism. So this similarity, I think, is not arbitrary precisely because throughout the Arab Spring, uh, Western critics, um, media experts, politi politi politicians, uh, news journalists, were talking about what is happening in Arab Spring countries in a way that's very similar and drawing a lot of similarities between what's happening there and what happened in East Europe uh, after, for example, the, Berlin, uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall, but also after the Orange Revolution in the UK. And um, it, it, I think this sort of similarity or the, this sort of uh, imposure of, of Western concepts of what could happen after the Arab Spring is being stretched a little bit into the literature as well. So it's, it's expanding in our analysis of the changes in Arab literature. And I think this, is, this can cause us to reproduce and see something that's not happening. So this is to my um, understanding, a Western projected idea of what African literature or North African literature has become after the, uh, after the events uh, of 2010-2011 and uh, sort of a projected from an East European context. I think North African literature in the last few years has not been slowly on science fiction, focused on science fiction. And before I suggest what it could have been about, let's attempt to look into another premise which is even more dangerous. And that's the... Um, the one related to the biggest promise of the Arab Spring from a Western perspective. The biggest promise of the Arab Spring from a Western perspective was to challenge and change the representation and idea of Arabs as static people who do not challenge dictatorships, who are happy with tyrannies, and who are not yearning for democracy and freedom, such, just like everybody else around the world. So this is the promise of the Arab Spring. And I think this is what it has been uh, doing, supposedly, but at the same time, assuming that literature from Arab Spring country, countries is mostly about science fiction or it has specific trends, I think it could be reductive and it can re reduce the richness and diversity of Arab literature uh, since 2010-2011 and put it in one or two or may very few trends. And perhaps the last premise that is, I think, the most dangerous, that by looking into trends emerging since the Arab Spring, we are basically saying that the Arab Spring is over. And in many countries, particularly in Tunisia, a lot of people believe that the Arab Spring is still happening. It hasn't finished yet. So to take a moment and look at post-Arab Spring literature is in itself problematic because it suggests that the revolution doesn't continue when it actually does. It's like um, we're representing history when it's still present. So we're saying it happened and it's still happening. So basically, I think the question of our panel could imply that the Arab Spring is over and that there is one trend we can observe after that, which is mainly science fiction, and that this trend already follows another observation we had into a different context, which is the East European one. So before we move on, let's ask a different question, okay, if I may. Um, what are the possible trends that could be observed, but maybe the multiple ways that African literature might have changed throughout the Arab Spring? And we can really only answer this question if we are willing to accept Arabs and Arab writers 
as co-creators of such an analysis of, of Arabic literature. We also need to admit that maybe we are only seeing instances and not fully transformed or fully formed um, trends. Maybe they haven't developed yet, and maybe there are multiple trends that will be developed, not just one. That some that could be completely new that we haven't seen or witnessed in other contexts before. So I'd like to share with you, I have four observations in that, in that, to, to answer that question. Um, I won't have time to go through all of them, but I'll just share with you a couple and Maybe we can uh, expand more in the questions and answers uh, part of, the, of today's panel. Um, first, there are works nowadays that are trying to rewrite the history of our countries from 19th and 20th century with a version of history that could have been otherwise censored and silenced before 2010. So these are writers who are trying to explore and bring alternative narratives that could have been completely impossible to bring before because of censorship. And... A classic example is the work of Tunisian novelist uh, Shukri Mabhout, who looks in his novels at what Tunisia looked like in the 70s and 80s and 90s and sort of brings a different and alternative story of the political um, transformation was going through during that time, a story that would have been completely unacceptable before 2010. But then there's also another observation, which is related to books that bring stories of social injustice going as far back as the Ottoman Empire, or maybe earlier in the centuries, and trying to expose social issues and raise questions about them in modern times. Uh, found Libyan female uh, writer Najwa Binshetwan really, really good, prominent, and poignant example for this, uh, with her work uh, in which she's also taken an activist role uh, against slavery with her novel Slave Span, The Slave Span. But in the two examples I mentioned above, I believe that such an interest in rewriting history is also related to an urgency that North African writers are feeling nowadays to reconnect to the public. Because as you might or might not know, what happened 2010-2011 did not follow an intellectual, a cultural, or a literary renaissance. It was a completely popular uprising. And I think writers now might be reaping the fruit of what the popular uprising did to have their own cultural and intellectual revolution. So it's happening the other way around than what the course of history had taught us before. Um, but, last, but last, perhaps a third observation from that, I will, work, I will talk more about my work, is that there's also a type of literature or, or, or stories that are trying to explore such sociopolitical changes since 2010 in Arab countries in connection to global issues and a global context of malaise and disenchantment. I think this is something that relates to everybody everywhere. We all feel that malaise and that disenchantment everywhere in the world. So there are writers who are trying to write about revolution, not about the revolution itself, but about issues and topics that were highlighted through the Arab Spring and that connect people in the Arab Springs to other people around the world and transcend their realities to relate to people outside Arab Spring countries and in places all over the world. And this is something I try to do with my stories. So I try to keep them universal, symbolic, and targeting the human anywhere. Personally, as much as I've been affected and inspired by the Arab Spring, I chose not to write about it yet um, because I have not digested the events and changes it brought and it's still bringing. So... You know, there's a saying that says you can only live life or reflect on it. And I think you can only live a revolution or reflect on it. So I choose to 
re write about the revolution in a reflective matter rather than a reactive matter. And um, one day I might reflect on it more broadly and, and write about it. I mean, the Arab Spring and the revolution in my stories. But for now, I try to observe it and think about it in a global context of painful shared human conditions. So I will read to you very short stories that could possibly illustrate that, if I may. Please do. I'll just do it there, if that's okay, fine. Lovely. Thank you. I've never read this story before. Hopefully it will be a good illustration for what I'm saying. It's called, um, titled, A Corpse, a Corpse Without Humanity. <clears throat> One day, three corpses met. Corpse of a wealthy man, Corpse of a famous woman, and a corpse without an identity. I am the corpse of a wealthy man, said the corpse of the wealthy man. Before my death, I was a strong body that everybody feared. I was scared of no one. My owner was so rich and needed absolutely nothing. But he wanted more money, so he multiplied his effort, exhausted his body, and tired his soul. His wealth increased as a result until he got very sick. When he disappeared for a while, everybody looked for him and found him dead on his desk. Everyone came to give their condolences to the family of my owner, and they buried me and wrote on my grave's tombstone, Here, here, died the sick man by his wealth. And I am the corpse of a famous woman, said the corpse of the famous woman. Before my death, I was a svelte body, and my owner was a very famous artist that everybody loved and surrounded with care and attention. But my owner wanted more fame, so she got anxious, then depressed and desperate. Her fame increased because of that, until depression killed her. When she suddenly disappeared, they found her dead on her bed. People came from all corners of the world to mourn her passing. They buried me and wrote on my gravestone stone, here, here died the depressed woman by her fame. The cause without identity looked around her and wondered in confusion and astonishment. But I don't know who I am. I, didn't, I don't know why I died or what was written on my gravestone. The corpse of the wealthy man said, It's okay. I have a game that will remind you of yourself, which my owner used to play with the famous woman. It's called the game of the unknown person. The corpses started to play the game of the unknown person. The corpse of the famous woman asked, were you a famous woman? No, I was nobody, answered the corpse. And were you a wealthy person? Asked the corpse of the, of the wealthy man. No, I was a poor person, said the corpse. Then she thought a while and said, ah, I remember. I was a person escaping from destruction and ruins, from injustice and terrorism from war and from being forgotten. But my owner wanted to get a little bit of life. So my owner ran away in a boat 
with hundreds like me. Then the boat capsized between the waves, and I fell, becoming a corpse at the bottom of the sea. I am the body of a person who died looking for life. The two corpses remembered that they had heard before their death about people like the ones that the corpse was talking about, people who face death for life. The two corpses realized that they, like all people, did not look for this corpse to find her and give her a name. They understood that the corpse was without identity because they were without humanity. The two corpses pitied her and said to her, Don't worry, we will help you find an identity and we will find the place from which you came. But the corpse without identity said, shouted, It's too late now. You cannot help me when we are all dead. You left me alone before my death and after it. So I will leave you and go find my identity. The corpse of the unknown person headed to the sea. The water tickled her arms, and she felt her toes fondling the sand. She continued to walk, leaving the beach behind her and facing the violent waves. On her way, she passed hundreds of other corpses that looked exactly like her. Corpses without graves or tombstones, corpses without identity. And before she dived into the sea, she wrote on a piece of forbidden driftwood, here died the humanity. Thank you. Very powerful reading. Um, thank you very much, Sama. Um, Ni, if I can take your presentation. We'll have all the presentations before we have a series of questions. Hi. I'm not really one for big presentations, but um, um, I do have some notes. I mean, I, I think that um, there is there is this tendency to try to explain everything that happens and to explain it in a very specific way, um, which is probably why we have the topic that we have. Um, why I think that there might be a limitation in, in the approach is, for one thing, um, a lot of North Africa writes in French. We don't translate enough from French into English. So actually our view of the literature coming out of North Africa after the revolutions, um, if you take the revolution, if you take after to mean after the revolution started, not when they ended, um, then our view is already skewed by what was chosen by other people to translate into English. So you have the few writers who are writing in English and then the few writers who are chosen by English editors to, to be translated into English. So there's already a skew in that. Um, then there's another thing that happens, which is when you have an incident like a revolution. You have writing that's reacting to it, but you also have all the years of creation that had been suppressed prior that comes out. So if you start to read everything that's coming out as just a reaction, then you're already lost. Um, and so it's really important that we don't do what we always do, which is to try and narrow narratives to just one reason, 
um, because these are very complex places. And when you speak to the writers um, come, who, who live in these countries, I mean, I met um, a Tunisian writer, actually, Ali Becher. I don't know if you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I met him in Algeria in 2015, and he's, you know, he's, he's been living in Tunisia right through everything. And he said, well, I mean, the revolution is not particularly going to change the way I write because I've always tried to be subversive regardless of what we're living through. So this is where you get a perspective of somebody who's been a writer, a career writer for years, and he teaches as well, who's saying, well, actually, yes, I can see something's happened, but my creative drive hasn't essentially changed. I've always tried to be subversive, and I will continue to do that. Um, So, yes, certain new issues might come into the writing, but his aesthetic is essentially the same. So if we start to read what he's writing after the revolution as some huge change, then we're sort of misguided. Um, and, and also, one of the other things is that as readers, we inhabit some of the change. And so we shouldn't forget that. Um, if you read Mahfouz um, and you'd read him prior to the revolutions, if you read him after the revolutions, because of our sudden awareness of a place and the things that are happening there, the kind of um, focus or the, 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 the weight of certain incidents then become more impactful or less impactful because of what we know about the places now. What tends to happen post-revolutions is, is that um, the context, our heightened awareness, alters the perception of what we read. So the revolution, to some degree, is partly within us, the revolution of how we're reading the work coming from these places. So it's much more complex than just the writing itself. It's also about how we approach the writing, how suddenly, I mean, and, and this is common, the appetite for writing from certain places becomes incredible, and every editor wants to have a story from there because, you know, there was a revolution there or somebody was thrown into prison. And, and so then you start to ask yourself, well, are they looking for the best work that's coming out, or do they just want to have somebody also writing? Are they pre- pretty much telling them what to write? I mean, there are all sorts of things that happen in the editorial world. So, you know, it's, it's, it's vitally important that we remember this and what we bring to the work ourselves. Um, so my I mean my experience with, with literature from North Africa um, and, and, and I mean I, I don't know if I can extend it to the entire Arab world is is, 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 um, is, is, is that since the revolution what I've, what I've found is the mundane things become very charged so um, my, um, I mean, I was reading Yasmin's book, um, Chronicle of the Last Summer, in, in which she was, she was talking about how somebody filming a tomato cart becomes such an act of subversion because mm-hmm. everyone's wondering, why are you filming this tomato cart? What are you going to do with it? Mm-hmm. What kind of, you know, dissent, public dissent are you going to start by mm-hmm. filming this tomato cart? So it's something that's completely mundane. I mean, you should be able to film a tomato cart. But... <laughs> It becomes a huge thing, and 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 I think that's, you know, that's the thing that's beautiful. Um, my my friend Hisham Matar's um, The Return, which is a, um, an autobiographical book about going back to Libya after his father had been in jail for many years and disappeared, and obviously still, I mean, is assumed dead. Um, but reading that and reading about him hugging his uncle, there's such a weight to it because I'm aware that his uncle was in jail for all those years. He, he didn't have the opportunity to hug him. So the weight of reading about something that is quite mundane in any other literature suddenly becomes 
very weighty. So this is where our own interaction with the text then puts a, a different kind of spin on the text. So I think when we're talking about these revolutions, it's important to see what's happening, what trends, are, you know, what trends exist in, 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 in writing, but also to look at how we are reading the work, how we have been affected by what the media tells us, by, um, by the stories that we've become exposed to, either by meet, sometimes by meeting people who fled, sometimes by meeting people who have been in jail and come out, um, and, and have come to tell their stories, just how much that affects the way we read. So I think that the revolution shouldn't be considered just purely from the side of the writers, but also from the side of us, the consumers. Um, um, and, you know, the, some of the perceptions that come to play in, in, in the way that the literature is seen are completely to do with time. I mean, if you think about A Thousand and One Nights, it's, it's, um, it's very secular, very sensual. You read Taib Saleh um, from Sudan years ago again. But the perception that we've come to have of, of the Arab world and its literature is that it's, it's, it's really constrained. And, and, and so suddenly, if, if somebody is writing something that's sensual, you think, oh, this is revolutionary. But actually, when you look back, it's, it's already been done before. It's not... It's not something new. It's, you know, there are these cycles that happen, and if, if you don't dig deep enough, you start to see something as a revolution that's not a revolution. Um, so I, I think it's vitally important that we remember all these things um, in considering the question of revolution in the creative output across the board. Yes, Minel Ashidi. Oh, I can see you're clapping there. <laughs> There's a delayed reaction uh, in terms of the footage, but we can hear you perfectly, and uh, thanks very much for your patience. Um, so I, I wonder if you can give your presentation, please. So, so I was just saying, you know, for me, the, the personal experience is that there felt like, it felt like there was an, an opening with the revolution, and that um, I feel we all, like all of us who, who part you know, who were a part of it felt quite liberated in a sense and I feel that there was um, there was a sense of an opening with our voices um, and so it felt much to write in a very different way way I hadn't before which is where the fiction came in but, but, but part of the challenge was that the next revolution was really um, almost colonized by Western media and Western publishers, and this what came a very surprise narrative was then expected of us too from the region. So the challenge of my book, for example, was that felt that you know I wanted to write something that, in a way, took in the experience of revolution, but also bypassed it because there was 30 years of life before it, and then yeah. there's it's very much of every day it's a sweeping definitive explanatory um, story and that's and those are the stories I feel that publishers want and and the response to the novel, you know, before it was published was so varied. I had editors who said that, you know, this isn't the story we, this isn't 
this, this story doesn't get at the hard truth huh. of what it means to be to grow up in Egypt. Or you can't have a book about Egypt and have a chapter square. Um, and so those are those are very very real you know challenges. Hmm. And I think it's important to consider those and looking at the literature that comes out. Hmm. You know, North Africa and Africa more probably is that I think that the West especially needs to be open to other stories and other narratives and and approach that literature with a very very different openness, understanding that truth. I we missed that last point, Yasmin. Uh, truth, uh, yes, uh, truth. I didn't quite hear the full uh, extent of your last um, uh, point. Uh, the fact that I do realize that you're saying that uh, you shouldn't allow the the revolution to define who you are as writers, and people should be more open to the truth uh, that that authors are writing. I just wonder if at this stage it might be better to um, Yasmin, relax your line a little bit or at least um, uh, you know, stop your presentation for now if you don't mind or just postpone, uh, pause it um, if that's okay. Um, but I wonder if, um, if I can actually ask you a question, Yasmin, um, just following on from what you and me have just said. And that's the fact that um, you touched on this aspect of not allowing the revolution to define you as a writer or define... Uh, Egyptians as a writer, when you, you, you were, I think it was a review of um, Tama Al Said's uh, book, Last Days of the City, which was about growing up in Cairo and working in Cairo. And also, again, you mentioned the fact that he mentioned the revolution in passing, but didn't allow it to define his book. Um, is it because you found that this is an all-encompassing narrative that, that editors want and that even, as Nee was saying, sometimes the, the readers want? Yes. I mean, I was, you know, there was, I had a lot of um, editors in the U.S. and also the U.K. approached me in 2011 and 2012 and asked if I was writing a book. And at the time, I was thinking about the, the a book, the book, and the book I came to write. But when I had a finished manuscript, I think there was such a sense of disappointment that I had not written a sweeping, you know, exciting, exhilarating book about the revolution. Hmm. And it was rejected quite widely. Um, and I, you know, the comments of some editors were quite brutal because they they sort of undermined the experience of what it is to live in a place. I was born and raised in Egypt. I spent my whole life there. So for an editor to tell me, you know, this doesn't deal with the hard truths of what it means to grow up in Egypt. Who's <laughs> <laughs> to say that except the person who lives that experience? But everyone wanted these sexy stories um, told, really centered on 2011. And I, I don't think that's true to our experience of life in these places. Something you did, something you did, sorry, something you did write about uh, in your novel. Um, 
I wonder if I fell into the same trap that Nee spoke about, where you read meaning into things that aren't quite there. You described at one stage when I think she was as a, an 18-year-old looking out of the window and you said her view was obscured by a large mango tree, which despite the fact that it had grown higher than the house, hadn't borne fruit for like eight years. And when, you asked, when she asked the gardener why it wasn't growing, he said, well, the soil is infertile, the soil is so hard, and um, it's all to do with Allah, that God has prevented it. And I thought this was an, an, an analogy of Egypt and the government and not allowing the nation to bear fruit. Did I f- make the same mistake that the knee has said many writers uh, make? Well, you make me sound much smarter than myself. <laughs> 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 no, it's interesting because the first impression I had around my book, the, the first in conversation was. <laughs> oh dear. Something, and I think I wrote that from the, the emotional place, re- less in, in my as I was writing it, thinking of the country as a whole and more thinking about my own experience, my own um, And so I feel that, you know, you, 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 you didn't have a bit of it. Um, I feel it carries that emotion, even if it wasn't thinking that. Um, I mean, I wish I, I was just completely... Yasmin, thank you so much for persevering despite this uh, very crackly line. I hope you can still stay on whilst uh, uh, both myself but also members of uh, the audience and put questions uh, to Samma and uh, to me. But for now, thank you very much uh, also for your contribution. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, Samma, if I can ask you, I I know you said that, um, you know, echoing what's been said already, that it's wrong to even take this, even the way that the question has been framed, is ill-advised. How old were you when, you, when the revolution, when Tunisia's revolution, when it took place? How old I was were you? about 22. 22. Did it in any way affect the way you, you write, even subconsciously, or did you deliberately avoid talking about the revolution at all or its impact on, on life? I deliberately avoided talking about the revolution because of what I mentioned earlier that I'm trying to reflect on it first and understand it in full I'm also in a stage of my life where I'm still forming my ideas and my um, references so I still do not feel um, completed enough in my in my thinking process to offer anything substantial in that sense uh, in talking about the revolution but at the same time I think it influenced me, it influenced me in a different way, very indirect one is that it showed to me that what I was talking about that we are very connected all over the world, and that before before the Arab Spring, I was under the impression that we, there was some sort of an Arab exception to the rest of the world, that we have our own problems and our own issues that are completely disconnected from the rest of the world. And what the Arab Spring taught me is that it's not the case, and that we are all related to each other. So I perhaps deliberately or unconsciously started to shift my writing from a much more contextualized one to one that, as you perhaps felt from the story, more human and more um, sort of to a general public, let's put it that way. 
with way, way less cultural references. So, if anything, I think the revolution made me talk less about the revolution and about the country, uh, the country from which it, it emerged. Something that I felt a lot in uh, reporting and reading about uh, events in Tunisia, in particular, especially being that, as that's where the Arab Spring started, is as you very well mentioned, as you mentioned, your revolution is still ongoing. Yeah. The people are maybe deceived <coughs> when they think that well, Tunisia is the one country in the Arab world after the Arab Spring that still has a form of democracy mm-hmm. but the youth still feel disillusioned mm-hmm. feel if I'm right maybe abandoned or even mm-hmm. forgotten and I wonder if that the fact that as you say the revolution is still ongoing mm-hmm. if that has informed writing mm-hmm. in, in not just for you but for other youth if that is changing <coughs> the way people write and then I think what happened is that writers and intellectuals realized their failure in connecting to people before 2010. We really had a distance and a disconnection with the rest of the people. We were talking about something and the people were feeling something else. And when people went on the street and expressed their feelings in a very um, loud and vocal way, a way that can disrupt regimes that were there for decades, that's when intellectuals and elites and writers and journalists started to think that, oh, you know, we need to reconnect to the general public. And that's now, I think, it's it's starting to happen, the youth, and because they're also the majority of the population, but most of the population, and young people in particular, they still feel marginalized, and they, feel, they still feel they're not being spoken to as much. But I also think that there is now an attempt from writers to connect to that audience much more. And it might not be, I don't think it's matured enough into literary styles or maybe new schools of thoughts or new ideas, but it definitely can be witnessed into new topics that are being, being, that are being expressed in novels today in Tunisia, topics that before were not necessarily, um, um, they, they were very censored, and they were important to people, but we're, we were never be, we were never been able to uh, discuss very publicly and openly. And one of them is clearly uh, religion. There, were, there are many other taboos as well in the society that I think before the revolution were very much in the personal, but also in the censored, silent public, spe- public sphere. But intellectual and really didn't dare to tackle as much. Or, to be fair, if they did dare, they end up either in jail or in exile. So it was not really an option. <laughs> so it's only now that they're trying to tackle these uh, topics. And I think that's the way to try to connect back to the young generation and to the general public in, um, in my country. Thanks. Talking about connections, Ni, I know you, um, not only are you setting up the Center for Creative Writing in Ghana, um, but you also have links with a number of writers across Africa, not just in sub-Saharan Africa, but in... Do you think it's... Is it just because... Is it just post-revolution that you started to make these connections, if you like, these links, particularly with um, our North African brothers and sisters and those in the Arab world, or is this something you've always tried to to forge, this relationship? Uh, Well, I mean, it wasn't an effort. (laughs) I just happened to to be friends with, with, with a few writers who are from from North Africa and um, and and I've, I've maintained those friendships and those friendships precede the revolution. So um, as I was telling you outside, I was in Libya um, about six weeks or maybe two months after the fall of Gaddafi for a literature festival. Um, and simply because my friend Khaled Matawa said, you know, he'd been in exile for many years, and he said, well, there's been no culture there for ages. I want to go and do a poetry festival. Will you come? 
And I didn't feel like I could say no. I mean, I was scared as hell. But, um, <laughs> but I, you know, my, my approach is always, if someone lives there, why would I not go? Um, I, I mean, yes, you can be scared, but you can't, you know, you can't deny them their humanity. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and it was a really moving experience because, um, again, you know, like places like, a bit like places like India and the Philippines, you know, the, the population is, is actually often much darker than, <laughs> than the public, you know, the public face of the country allows us to believe. And, and at that festival, um, I, I met some writers who were Nubian Libyans who were, you know, as dark as I was, and, and they were saying, look, I've, we've never seen a writer um, as dark as you over here. Um, and, and, and one of them was literally crying, like, I, you know, I, it makes me believe I can do this. And, but, but also just, you know, the number of people that came to that festival, even though, you know, people were being defended by factions of militias and nobody really knew who was, you know, really in control of things, people came. They came and, and, and they were there for hours and, and sat there for, you know. And, and one of the things that was really striking, again, if you, if you talk about how people respond to revolutions, what, one of the things that was really striking, every day I went out, I would see the men playing. They'd be playing football, and the kids were playing at being soldiers. Mm-hmm. So the men were trying to get away from, you know, the violence, and the kids were playing at being violent. And it was really incredible thing to witness um, just in the way that you know we are as humans which if you extend that could also explain why s- sometimes people don't want to write about the revolution straight away you know I mean when my father died I didn't write about it for about 10 years you know because mm-hmm. you do need time to process sometimes mm-hmm. um, so to kind of um, jump on whatever comes out straight after and think that that is the reaction is, is, is a bit misleading. It makes me think of something that um, somebody who's connected to the uh, Ake Book Festival, you know, in Nigeria, in Abeokuta, and uh, somebody approached me saying that, oh, they want to hear from um, displaced people in northeast Nigeria who have uh, suffered the effects of Boko Haram. And it struck me that would they really be in a position right now to talk about something that they're still living? As you said, the revolution is still ongoing. You haven't yet attained that freedom that you've been fighting for, and yet people are still... And I wondered when I, you, you know, I read, first of all, and then after you, you also um, gave us the performance of your three corpses, that that is what people are still enduring. You know, we see how many hundreds of thousands hmm. who are crossing the Mediterranean. You know, and I wonder if there's that connection that some people say to you. Are these the kind of voices that we might hear from your centre hmm. of the creative writing? Those who've lived hmm. the experience yeah. of migration crossing the Mediterranean. Well, I mean, I certainly one of the things that I, I will be doing at the centre is, is is certainly making. Um, the reading list much more representative of, of, of a larger Africa. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky in the sense that when I was studying, I went on an Erasmus program to France. So I've read French for over 20 years, and it, that's one of the reasons also that I, I, I have a, a bigger circle of North African writer friends, because there are more of them in France than there are over here. Um, and I do, I do think that the fiction that we create does have some relation to the fiction that we consume. And so, you know, I did a creative writing program here. Um, the writing was pretty much your standard, you know, um, Shakespearean fodder, which is good stuff, but, you know. Um, <laughs> he says, <laughs> quickly. <laughs> um, but, 
but but sometimes, especially you know, for for people who are growing up in 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 a place where they don't have the same cultural references, might not be as as effective as as points of inspiration. So certainly, one of the things that we're doing is 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 make sure the reading list is much more global. Uh, lots from Latin America, lots from Asia, lots from the entire um, continent of Africa. Um, but also critical writing um, from the continent as well. Um, again, there's a lot of it um, in Arabic and in French. Not so much of it in English, but still there is. Um, and so those are the kinds of things that we're trying to do. And I don't know what the effect will be, whether they will tell these kinds of stories, but I, certainly what my responsibility is, I think, is to make sure that they're exposed to a wider world um, and, and just feel the freedom to inhabit whatever language their experience gives them. Um. Thank you, Neat. Now, uh, I have so many more questions I want to ask all three, but I won't be greedy because I know you also have so many questions. So perhaps for the next um, 30 minutes or 25, we'll open up the floor. Yasmin, I hope you can still hear us. I, I can hear you perfectly. Wonderful. Okay, so um, it's question and answer time now, so um, I'm opening it up to the floor. Please, um, please, if I can ask you to keep your questions succinct and to the point, but not give a lecture or, <laughs> you know, give your own kind of, um, yeah, so, sir. Uh, thank you. Um, as, as an interested reader, I don't know how to find the books that Ghanaians think are important to, to Ghana rather than what an American editor or a British editor thinks is important to, to translate. So how do I find out what's going on, who, who the locals, the cultural, the people who understand the culture, who they think are worth reading? Um, it's, it's an interesting question on two levels. Um, because I think the, the primary the primary The primary distinction should be quality, you know. So when it comes now from Yasmin's story, and I, I've had similar experiences um, of people telling me that a family in my book is not Ghanaian because it's not big enough, um, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so primary distinction is, is quality. But the second thing that needs to happen is just a little bit of humility as readers and and. and, and and especially with people who work in, in the editorial field. I mean, I work as an editor myself, and I, I do realize that sometimes I come, I come to things and I have this approach of I know what's going on here, but sometimes I need to take that away and say, okay, I'm just going to read this. Whatever it's saying, let's see what the quality is and if it's credible in itself. Because, you know, saying that we're looking for what's important for Ghanaians or, or Africans or, or Tunisians, whatever it is, it means that we're, we're buying into one of the myths of the publishing industry, that there are trends and that there's a fashion, that there is one thing that's important mm -hmm. to all Ghanaians at one mm -hmm. time, mm -hmm. but there isn't. Mm -hmm. So if a book is well-written and if it's true to itself, then ultimately people will get into it. Um, and, and I think that's it. I mean, I, I certainly would much rather read a book about Ghana which is unfamiliar to me 
in the sense that their story is so, so much different from my story, but I also know that it's from Ghana, than read one that's familiar to me. So if you ask me, I might tell you something that's familiar to me, which doesn't mean that if I saw something that wasn't familiar to me, I wouldn't read it. I don't know if that answers your question. Not quite, but it's interesting. Yeah, um, because, yeah, because I, I, don't, I, I don't know that there is that answer for finding out what is of interest to Ghanaians because it assumes that all Ghanaians think in the same way. In, in it would have been better if I had said, how do I find out what's quality? Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, the same way you find out what's quality everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, sorry, one thing I did forget to say, if you, have, uh, if you want to introduce who you are or if you're representing a particular organization or a body, or, you know, please feel free to do so as you ask your question. My name's uh, Samuel, and um, I'm, I've actually wrote my own book, and uh, um, sort of a, as a diary um, biography. Um, but in it, I also brought out the wider aspects that were going on. So it's kind of about myself, but about the wider issues. It was quite a while back, and I think the Iraq War was actually going on at the time, and I included all these other things that were happening as well. So it's kind of about myself, but I sort of took it out to the wider aspects of the world. And, you know, you were saying about the global issues, you know what I mean, and how it, it sort of impacts on us. And even though we're individuals, um, things that's happening, as we've seen with Syria, you know, has impacted on us as well, not just um, in terms of, you know, refugees coming here and to be looked after, but... Also, us giving that support and, you know, protesting as well and getting very involved in the sort of political aspects of it. So, um, I'm trying to think why I was bringing that to it. But I'm, I suppose it's that sort of thing. We're individuals, but we're also part of the wider, you know, aspects of things. And we can actually bring that into our writing as well, even if we're writing about ourselves. But we can also bring out the, the wider issues uh, and challenge those things that are going on as well, you know what I mean, that's happening. Um, uh, yeah, that's kind of what I wanted to say. And also, uh, recently, I've been trying to find out more about my own history, and I've learned, actually, my connection with my African heritage, you know. And um, it's so easy for our histories to kind of get rewritten for us. You know, you talked about narratives and things, and you know, sometimes our narratives can get rewritten. Um, so it's always important for us to know who we are, you know, know our own histories as well, because, you know, it, it can get rewritten and uh, different narratives can come out from that, and that affects our identities, who we think, who we, think we are. Do you want to respond to that, Sarah? Um, I mean, it's, it's really a good comment, uh, looking at the value of literature from a personal perspective and sort of to the general public and to the audience. I, I, I can't say which one is better or which one is more important because some personal stories have been just as influential and as powerful and um, uh, interesting as a story that, it has, um, that touches upon other social issues or you know, relates to other people. Uh, but I think it's very important to, to find more stories of less uh, important people. So I find it very frustrating sometimes when I listen to important people saying very 
mundane things, or very, you know. Mm-hmm. And these things are coded as important, not because they are important, but because the people yeah. who said them are important. Mm-hmm. So I find it very essential nowadays to have a variety of voices and have voices of people who do, who do not have as much space and as much access and as much opportunities to get themselves heard, but who can offer perhaps a way more important content than that of, you know, that, that that's offered by an important person. Hello, thank you guys for a wonderful panel. Um, I have a couple of questions. Um, so one of my questions is for Ni, and I just wanted you to reflect on, you know, the idea of, of placeless settings for novels. Um, and sort of the, the tension there is, is that you, you, you know, this idea of, a, of an African country, you know, that it could be any African country, and that the kind of stereotypes about an African country, you know, so I wonder, you know, what is your decision to write a kind of about placeless places and is that something that you struggle with um, and my question I have for Samir is that you said earlier that you're you know you've written from a young age and you're and you're still kind of growing up and and you know as a young academic as well you know I wrote things when I wrote my PhD and the paradigms in development have shifted and you think, oh, I think about things differently now, you know, and, and if I could go back, I would write that in a different way. So I wanted to know, you know, in terms of the, the things that you wrote about earlier, what, what, has, what has shifted in your mind about the way in which you, you think about your role as a writer and, and mistakes that you might have made earlier and, and how do you deal with that sort of growing up as a writer in public view. And I'll ha- I have a question for Yasmin, but I'll ask her it in, in, in person <laughs> as well. Oh, or sh- should I ask her a question? So my question for Yasmin is, is, do you think that this problem of editors, you know, that, that when I think one of the exciting things about 2017, you know, is quite a dark political time, but in culture we have a lot of different voices, both in, in literature and in popular culture, on television and movies. But in, in the world of TV and, and movies, you also have this problem of the, the directors and the producers being white men and some of the artists being more diverse. So I wanted, you know, is the change in t- at the editorial level and the publishing level, is it happening slowly or is it, is it not happening at all? You know, is it still a kind of diversity of artists but not at the level of, of publishers and producers? Y- Yasmin, would you mind answering first, please? Sure. Um, I mean, that's a difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> Because the right, I mean, I'll answer sort of in two parts. In, in the first part, I feel that, you know, this conversation, this panel has been so much about the readers and the industry, and I feel it's important to also talk about the responsibility of writers and the responsibility of a certain kind of integrity. Like, I know that I could have written a very different, or there's the possibility of having written a very different book that would have got a very different kind of attention. But I know I couldn't live with that book because it wouldn't have had that integrity and felt true to me. It wouldn't have felt like a more a truthful book. And so I feel that 
you know, the I feel that if writers, you know, write these works that they can live with and that have that integrity, I feel you push um, the publishing industry and editors, you push them to engage with that. But on the other hand, I think it's really important to, you know, I think for me the experience I learned that there are these fantastic independent publishers with these amazing sort of almost, um, I mean, I mean, again, independent editors who have what are considered maybe more idiosyncratic tastes, but who are much more open and who are much more, and who are, have this interest in works also from other places and in translation. And so I think it exists. It just feels like it, because there isn't a market, there isn't such a big industry around it, I feel we don't pay as much attention to those spaces in the same way that there are. I mean, I'm in New York at the moment. In the same way that there are, um, you know, presses even through the election that were covering everything that was happening here, really trying to push those boundaries and question and investigate, but they were smaller and they weren't getting the attention that the New York Times or CNN or you know those places are. So I think these things exist. It's it's but they don't have the the, the machinery around them. I think to give them that kind of attention. I don't know if that fully answers your question. We're getting a nod here, Yasmin. <laughs> uh, Samar, the question about has your writing changed over the years and things that, looking back, you might have written differently or might think about differently now? Yeah. Um, well, I started writing when I was seven, so it's almost uh, 21 years ago. Uh, in the meanwhile, I tried to explore different genres, you know, wrote a bit of poetry, mostly it was story, short stories for children that I wrote. Um, but when I look back at the short stories I wrote, I find that I've definitely changed in style and date, I've changed in the range of topics that I was interested in, uh, but very unconsciously and absolutely not deliberately. So um, I think there isn't anything that I can change about the way I used that I, do, that I want to change about the, use, that the way I used to write, but there are things that I want to change about the way I'm writing now and I want to write in the future. And... I think that as an um, as an adult, if I if I had you know seven years old me right here, you know I wouldn't be teaching her something. She would be teaching me a lot, and this is something that I was advocating for since I was a child because I find it very frustrating that people thought of children only as consumers of literature and not as producers of it, even when it comes to children literature. And when I look at my stories back then, they weren't probably as um, coherent or perhaps as symbolic or maybe as deep, but some of them were very fresh and very funny. I had a very good sense of humor, which I think I lost. So, <laughs> I mean, you can tell from the story I just told you, there's absolutely no moments of laughter there. So I think, if anything, there are, there are, there are lessons that I want to learn from that child. And I think this is also partly because of the academic um, you know, experiences uh, I've been pursuing. And definitely I found academia to be, and now especially with the PhD writing, because it's such a long project, uh, I find it to be very uh, instructive and useful for critical thinking and for analytical thinking, but absolutely destructive for creative thinking. Mm -hmm. At least that's what I felt. Mm -hmm. So um, th this is now why I realize that once I finish this project, because I'm committed to it now, I will 
completely disconnect myself from academia <laughs> so I can try to find back that little kid who was absolutely not as um, um, she, 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 did, she had a lot of missing gaps but so does the, uh, the more adult one or the more grown, grown up one but she definitely had much more bravery and boldness in expressing herself and I think this is now what I want to learn the most and perhaps the mistake that I've been sort of trapped in and I want to learn from now is um, just fearing. You know, when you wrote, when you wrote, I wrote about hundred stories. They were all for children. They're all short stories. And now I'm trying to make it change into writing novels for adults. But I fear uh, that new beginning because it's not going to be coming from scratch. And I think younger me was way more braver and and way more uh, outgoing and and spontaneous in that sense. Uh, than me now so uh, that is definitely the lesson that I want to learn from my younger self rather than the other way around you may sound like you're regretting your doctorate um, <laughs> sort of but don't tell my supervisor okay. <laughs> <laughs> remember this is going out of the podcast but anyway me, um, <laughs> um, this question about writing about nameless or fictitious African places um, well I mean I, I write I mean, for one thing, I, I write um, different genres, so I do different things depending on the genre. Um, with short stories, um, the places are very specific, and, and they tend to be places that do exist. With novels, what I tend to do is, is write about places that don't exist because I want the reading to be more about the ideas and the places. I happen to, to have grown up in a place where the moment you name... I mean, look, the publishing industry works this way. If you're from Africa and you say, this is Kenya... The first thing someone's going to tell you, oh, my grandfather went on holiday there, or my, or my, you know, it's like, it's like the book, you haven't even read the book yet, you know? Um, I mean, I met a woman in the play who was like, and we had to leave, um, you know, the Mau Mau was so terrible, I'm like, what was your dad, he was a police, do you know what he, they were doing to the Mau Mau? You know, it's like, so it's kind of such a fraught space of naming the place, and then people bring all these things to it. And what I tend, my novels tend to be much more explorations of questions that concern me. And so I, w I want to be in the idea space. And so I, I tend to create places that don't exist. So my first novel was set in a village that doesn't exist, even though it's in Ghana. Um, so even with that, I mean, I've had to deal with, is this about, you know, abuse in Ghana? And is, you know, I'm like... It's, you know, so, and so, yeah, the, the novel I've just finished is set in a non-existent Caribbean island, um, Spanish-speaking Caribbean island. So hopefully I won't get the Ghana questions anymore. But um, it's, yeah, it's, it's because I want to explore ideas. And I, and I think it's vitally important um, that we work in the realm of ideas because perspectives, our perspectives are, you know, global perspectives haven't played so much in the world of ideas. When you talk to people studying history and anthropology. These are two disciplines that are really going through, you know, some painful questions and rebirth and whatever because they are, they're realizing, they're realizing years later that these are disciplines that were founded on preconceptions and, 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 um, and I mean, to put it bluntly, and some degree of racism and, and paternalism that affects all the academic work that was produced. In, in these disciplines. So they're going through, through this thing. And, 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 and so for me, I, I feel for my novels, um, 
exploring ideas, but exploring it from the perspective of somebody who's grown up in Ghana, um, is completely different from exploring ideas from the perspective of someone who's grown up over here. And so it's, it's important for me to do that and for me to remove the distraction almost and say, hey, you know, these are ideas that we all should be thinking about, you know, because ideas aren't just driven from, from one place. Um, and, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the reason why I do it. I don't know if it's entirely successful, but I'm committed to it. Just like you're committed to your. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any other questions, please? Uh, I'll go this way. Okay. So the lady in the pinkish colour jumper. Hello. Thank you. Um, I run a project called Wild Words, which is to support writers around self-expression. So I'm really interested in um, the way writers in different countries find support systems for their writing, especially in. in places where certain things are unsayable or certain things are not allowed to be said. So I wondered if you could just comment on your individual experience in your home countries around whether you found support systems, whether you felt um, lonely or alone in your writing, and whether you felt able to say the things that were difficult to say within your cultures. Can we perhaps start with Yasmin? Yasmin, did you hear the question? Um. I mean, sort of, was it about... About whether you, whether you found support systems for your writing um, and how, and if so, how? And what kind of structures are there? And if, yeah, if you're able to say things that are maybe the authorities want taboo. to censor, maybe, or a taboo, and what kind of support systems you have and support networks? I mean, I, in, on a very basic level, I feel that, you know, the fact that I... Live. I mean, I've been in, in the U.S. for a year now on a fellowship and then teaching, but I think the fact that I have lived and worked in Cairo my whole life has enabled me to be a writer. Um, and by that, I mean on a very basic level of how you can support yourself as a, a writer. It's very it's difficult, you know. I don't know how people do it in the U.S., for example. Whereas for me, Egypt has offered that possibility. Um, and it's offered that possibility. I, I first started writing for a local weekly newspaper that was sort of quite long form and literary. And that was my first community of writers. And, you know, the, one of the youngest people I started with there at the time is now a fantastic novelist, Yusuf Racha, who's very widely published. He's still there. Um, and so there is a sense. There's something about, for me, sense of time that creates community and that creates these support structures that you wouldn't sort of even think of. In terms of what you can and can't say, my biggest challenge is self-censorship, to be honest. Um, there, you know, writing and publications there, of course, there are things that an editor will come back and say, well, you can't use this word, or you definitely have to cut this sentence. I don't face that writing for publications here. My book was published by a U.S. publisher. But I'm very, you know, and it's, it's, it's my own challenge. I'm very conscious of what I am committing to the page that my immediate community will be reading and what that means to them, the implications, the levels of comfort, um, you know, we as writers, we borrow from the lives around us for even in our fiction, and we're privy to so much. And that feels like a responsibility. So I feel that that, that 
that censorship or that, or that caution really comes, I think, from my thought. And that's something I would li- I'm, I'm trying to work through. <laughs> but it's how we're socialized, you know? Mm-hmm. I spent 37 years of my life in this country, in this quite tight-knit community. So I care what they think and what they, you know, what I'm doing to their lives and not doing to their lives. Yes, I mean, I, I wanted to, to, to say, but it, it seems to me also that the editorial world over there is prepared to take risks because, I mean, it was a magazine that published Ahmed Naji's, um the excerpt from his work, right? Yes. Yeah. I, the thing is, there are also, I think, there are these ideas of what censorship is. And, you know, there are red lines in any country. And in Egypt, the red lines have always been quite clear. Like, up until Mubarak... You know, we knew politically what we could say and what we couldn't. And I worked for a semi-government, you know, owned paper. So Mm. I was subjected to that. You knew what the red lines were. And the government at the time gave enough space where you could write about sexual relations um, between people of the opposite sex in a certain way. And what has changed in the past few years is that we no longer know what those red lines are and mm. that the space of what you can and cannot do and what you can and cannot write is quite opaque and it's it's crossed much more into from just the political red lines of speaking out against the regime and it's crossed much more into territory of um, what what is moral and what's immoral and mm. you're standing morally as a citizen and I think that's where Ahmed Negi, who wrote, you know, this quite ex- sexually explicit content, you know, the, go- the case that was raised against him was not by the government, it was by a private citizen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but the government is responding to that now, and I feel that, the truth be told, under Mubarak, I don't think a case like that would have been taken seriously. They had much bigger concerns. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's Something is really shifting, and it's not, it's very, it's uncomfortable. Mm. Is, is it the same for you, Samai, especially given that, as Yasmin said, she writes a lot and has been a lot in the, U, in the, U, in the U.S., mm. and for you, you're currently based here in the U.K., do you find maybe the support network that you've been asked of is based more here, or is it both in Tunisia and maybe Iraq as well? Actually, if I may just mention a couple of uh, times where I face censorship because they're very um, funny, actually. Um, I've only uh, had um, issues with censorship with my stories in two of them. One of them was just about a trial of a wolf. So it was like a you know, children's story you know, happening in the forest, all animals, and it's a trial. And the guardians of the, of the court were, I put them as dogs. And dogs in Arabic, uh, in, in Arab culture, is a quite an offensive, like if you, if you call someone a dog, it's a very offensive term. So because they were the guards and they were the security, some people thought that they would be referring to the Ministry of Interior Affairs, which is the guard in the country. <laughs> so they've asked me to, you know, not um, mention that the, the, the dogs are the, 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 the guardians of the court. <laughs> And that, but even more funny than that, and even worse, it's not just the political censorship, it's one that's very social and generational. So when I wrote a story called um, The Diaries of a Lazy Girl, and it was just talking about a lazy girl in school, and they thought that it was an encouragement for children to be lazy. Mm-hmm. So I was very, criti- I was really criticized for that and, you know, asked to change the narrative of the story so it's like at the end she wants to not become lazy. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I really wanted her to remain lazy, and yeah. you know, she was challenging that same notion that I'm trying to yeah, fit to face. Waywardness. So you know, I think it, it, because I, because I guess I was child, I, I was faced. Uh, I, I was facing different ways of, of censorship that are not necessarily political or contextual mm. in terms of like mm. social, mm. Uh, you know, what Yasmin was talking about, but also sometimes generational, you know. Uh, but my my biggest support systems were very very basic, you know. It's like family. My my father was the main supporter of my work, but he was also the main critic uh, of it. And uh, w- when I lost him at age 14, I had to f- create my own support systems, and I found out that other children who also write stories are the best support system because now I can't be singled out as uh, one example you know and an example that was hardly believed so people always saw that my father is writing for me now it's a movement now there are a lot of us a lot of children who are writing so I think whenever I'm traveling whether in Tunisia or in the UK or sometimes uh, in Canada as well where I'm sometimes based as well I always look for people who share a similar experience in Mm -hmm. the the writing uh, field because they are the ones not only that I can learn from, but also who can legitimize my work. Mm. Neither. The question is quite pertinent for you because you'll now be creating a community of writers. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, pastoral care might be something you also have to think of, but how would you answer the question? About well, I mean, the thing about... Um, I mean, the support system primarily is always family, I think, you know, they're going to be the first readers of your work. Beyond that, it's it's whether or not there is a readership that doesn't think you're crazy. But as as far as um, censorship goes, I always say to my students, you know, you can say anything. You just have to ask yourself if you can deal with the consequences. Um, and, and that's what it comes down to. If, if I really want to say something badly enough, I don't care if I have to go to jail. That's that's what it comes down to. So censorship does exist, but you know, as my father used to say, you only know you're in jail until you tr- when you try to go out. If you haven't tried to go out, you don't know you're in jail. So I, I, I will say it. Let them let it get to that point, and let them come and say I'm arresting you. But I, I'll say it, and you might find that you know nobody really cares. You just might. I'm not, I'm not promising that. <laughs> Though clearly the realities for you in Ghana are very different from those of Yasmin and also of Samara. So in terms of when you, you look at a government that is making it its, its business, whether it's to do with social pressures or religious pressures, they have been putting people on a regular basis behind bars because they're writing. So yeah. the, the pressures on you would be quite different. From they, they, they are different. Um, it's sometimes it's in societies where you don't have that overt censorship where it can be more difficult because sometimes it's subtle and, um, and it's channeled through friends, a comment here, a comment there. So you, you just, yeah, I, I think you just have to do your work. Mm-hmm. There will always be some form of censorship from somewhere. Um, so. uh, this lady in the front had a question. Sorry, I just, um, I wrote as a child the most wonderful gift in the days when I'd hear this, you shut that light off right, right now, young lady, and go to sleep. And was the most wonderful gift anyone ever gave me was a pen with a torch <laughs> built into it so that I could write under the covers all night. And somehow at some age, even though I kept sort of writing that to the degree that 
you know, being published, I was, I was published at seven, but not, didn't, was the, the sort of censorship by the family. Mm-hmm. And it's so important for parents not to do that. But there's, there's situations, there are cultures within a family, things that family members don't want told, things that have to be squished that a child will say. And it's very much a similar being in jail mm-hmm. and, and without the bars around you. But to encourage the children in families that may be experiencing familial repression to write feels important, and I just love what you're doing. Thank, you. Thank you for Thank what you. you gave me today. Thank you, Thank you very much. Uh, is there somebody here? Because I was going around this way. Okay, and then we'll come up. Hello. Um, my name is Sausen, and I like to define myself as a um, human rights activist, as a Tunisian human rights activist. Uh, I work for an organization that supports media and journalists across the region. And as a Tunisian woman in the UK, I'm often, of course, asked about the revolutions, about uh, the situation in Tunisia, what the revolution has brought to me, has it changed me, my life, etc. And um, as if the region can only be seen today uh, through the revolution. Um, uh, though that for at least most uh, local uh, Tunisian, uh, for Tunisia, uh, all the issues that emerged with the revolution were already well known, uh, uh, at least for us, like unemployment, corruption, uh, dictatorship, uh, torture, etc. And um, I'm wondering now uh, how can we... um, liberate ourselves from the revolution, if that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> Though, of course, we embrace it, and we can only like, uh, embrace uh, change, uh, uh, and that can bring hope for the, um, the population. But I, I'm wondering, like, um, how, uh, when can we be seen uh, as people? as equal, uh, as people that have aspiration and uh, want to uh, live and fulfill uh, their lives and not merely seen as, uh, you know, as a social experiment or that the Arab <laughs> Springs tell us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I've been told that we can only have two more questions. So there were two gentlemen who, and then maybe... They can. So, would you like to respond to the point that was made, or she made it quite Perhaps succinctly? After, after okay. So, the gentleman in the hat, time. and then the man in the violet um, jumper. Yeah, you after after the man in the hat. Oh, I thought you did. <laughs> ah, okay, wonderful. That gives room for somebody else to ask a question. That's fine. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to follow on from Summer's attempt to kind of deconstruct some of the paradigms of this conversation at the beginning. Um, and ask to what extent can we talk about African literature and African revolutions? Um, And to what extent is the term useful in elucidating these shared narratives, shared histories, shared networks between North, South, East, West Africa? And to what extent it kind of obscures the diversity and plethora of different narratives and voices that are present in the continent? Um, So, yeah, how do we strike that balance between it being a useful category and perhaps obscuring some of the subtleties of African experience. Who would like to answer first? Um, yeah, the whole African writing thing is, is mainly useful as a marketing tool, and I'm very aware of that. 
Um, I, I think that what we can do as writers and what, what I tend to do and also read as people from the continent is to always make people understand how complex it is. You know, one of the things I often say to people is that in Ghana, you know, there are, at a conservative estimate, 60 languages, right? I speak three of them. My older brother speaks four of them. So if we walk through a market and somebody's throwing insults, anything that comes in one of the languages I don't understand, I'm not hearing. So I can walk through that market smiling. My brother understands that extra language and he hears an insult. He's frowning. Okay, so our experience of going to the market immediately becomes completely different. We're going to come home. He's fuming. I'm smiling. Okay, that alone affects the stories that come out of the place. So when you think of a country as small as Ghana having 60 languages, I'm not even going to go into Nigeria. Um, <laughs> um, you know, so, but these, these are the complexities that to some degree, it's our duty to, to kind of inform the world. Um, I've, I've often wondered why people say stuff like, oh, you're multilingual, like it's a surprise. Actually, you're monolingual should be a surprise because most of the world is bi or more lingual. And being monolingual is the odd thing. But because a lot of the narrative and a lot of the marketing comes from monolingual societies, it's made to look like multilingual is the periphery and monolingual is the center. Okay, so we have to remember these flaws in the system within which we live. And so it does come with a responsibility that you're almost to some degree teaching, which is not always great, but, you know. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's, it's a job that we all have to do. And, and you know, um, and, and it's, it's also very complex. I mean, my name is Parks. You know, I mean, how English a name can you get? So when... You, when, you, when you deconstruct that and you realize, you know, and, and, and I explained to somebody that my great-grandfather came from Guadeloupe um, because his father was West, West Indian Regiment from Jamaica and he had him and then he took him to Sierra Leone and my grandfather migrated from Sierra Leone. And suddenly people were like, okay, so we have all of these really complex stories. Um, and, you know, we, we have a whole, we have um, Ukrainian communities and Scottish communities and Indian communities. And it's just like an explosion of possibilities in there, of stories in every single one of these u unique things. And then we have, a, you know, um, it depends on how you're going to define things, but, you know, um, and William Boyd was born in, in, in Ghana, you know, so he's Ghanaian. Um, he grew up in Nigeria, so he has a Nigerian experience. You know, so all of these things come into play. And, and so it's, it's a complex place, even if you're going in one small society. So we have to remember this and we have to keep, we have to be the ones to keep reminding people of this. And, and so when you're asked, I mean, when I'm asked sometimes to do stuff on radio, I'm, you know, they'll say, oh, you're from Africa, come and talk on this. And I very often will say to the researchers, listen, I know I'm from Africa, but this particular topic, you really need to be talking to someone else. Mm. Um, but I know, I know people who might not do that because they do offer you good money. You know? um, so so these, these are the things that we, we, we're grappling with all the time. It is, and I think it's, you know, it's, our, it's our, our duty to keep, to keep it exploding that narrative. Not just Africa, the whole global south, you know, Latin America, um, Asia, yeah. Yasmin, I was wondering if you've had the same thing, uh, the same experience whereby they talk about the North Africa experience as if it's a monolithic uh, kind of uh, structure or culture or politics because of the Arab Spring. Um, I mean, I think, you know, Egypt is a little bit different. I, I feel like it's 
Egypt really thinks of itself as Egypt. <laughs> if you ask an Egyptian if you know what continent the country is on, they will not probably tell you Africa. <laughs> 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 yeah. This is true. Um, I don't. I mean, I feel that we're more grouped. We seem to be more grouped with the Arabs somehow mm. than the North African. Um, but certainly, I think that, you know that, that there has been the grouping post-revolution of um, in certain in cer certain narratives, I feel that we've been grouped with North Africa if it's convenient, mm -hmm. you know, if it fits some circumscribed idea of what a place and culture and experience are. Um, mm. Thank you, Yasmin. To be much more groups, I find as like you know, with the Arab world, mm -hmm. yeah. Certainly, the reality, even uh, as a as a broadcaster, I know most of the time people ignore the fact that there are certain countries in the north of the continent that are actually part of Africa, and they you know make the distinction between sub-Saharan or North African. But now, as you say, more often than not, they talk about it as the Arab world. And now, now you hear more people talking about Libya as part of the African problem and part of the North African problem, particularly because of migration. Um, somebody, there was one last person, I think, who had their hand oh, up. Oh, wasn't there the question about how do we define ourselves? Um, if there's, yeah, about um, if the there's one more question before, before if we not, it seems answer. everybody's fine. So maybe if you don't mind answering the gentleman in the hat. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think Nia said that question very uh, well. I really have nothing more to add. It's a very good answer to that. Uh, and it's a very good point. But I also wanted to uh, celebrate Samson's point uh, and thank her for using the word liberate ourselves from the revolution because I really I made this point of view back in 2012 at a time where the revolution was still, you know, celebrated and glorified. And um, I think now it's perhaps more accepted uh, to make it than at the time. That's actually perhaps the biggest dictator that emerged in the last few years in Arab Spring countries is the Arab Spring itself. It's the revolution. It's become something, a concept that's beyond our questioning, that's beyond our criticism, that's beyond our ability to transcend it and talk about other things, not just to ourselves but also to others. And it is making us the only thing that's interesting in a way, or the, it, it's the aspect of our life or, the, or, the, or of our history that's becoming the most interesting now. And it's frustrating in academia, it's frustrating in literature, and it's frustrating even in daily communication with the people, as you mentioned from your own experience. So you are right. It, it, it's, it's only... Um, it's all, well, there, just to answer your question, perhaps, how can, we do, how can we get out of that bubble, of, or how can we get out of the dictatorship of the revolution? Um, I'm, I'm trying to do this in a way by not talking about the revolution, but basically sort of in a subtle way discussing issues and, and uh, events that happened throughout uh, without tackling the revolution. But I think perhaps another way that I haven't um, come across as often, but I'm sure will be uh, more present in uh, literature in Tunisia and other North African countries, is simply by talking about other things that have absolutely nothing to do with the revolution, absolutely nothing to do with uh, social criticism or social issues or activism. And I think that can only also happen if the public accepts that there could be stories of just personal narratives and not necessarily of writers who are trying to take on an activist role. I think we need to celebrate the richness of voices where not all writers have a role to you know, stand by the people, 
but some writers might just you know indulge in a sort of a self explorative uh, narrative uh, and a story that has nothing to do with the revolution or what happened in the last few years but that would require much more bravery and much more acceptance and tolerance in our own countries for that richness because that reductiveness is not only happening from people that you meet here it's also happening from ourselves as well in our own contexts and countries Thank you very much. Uh, that brings us to the, the end of this uh, very, very uh, wonderful lecture. I have to say, certainly on my part, it's been a pleasure to sit here and listen to Samar, to Ni, and to Yasmin. And uh, I'm sure also it's been a pleasure for you to have all three of them uh, addressing us. On behalf of the Firoz Lalji Center for Africa and the LSE Literary Festival, thank you very much for your visit and for taking the time to listen to uh, Samia Samra Megzani, Ni Ayikwe Parks, and to Yasmin El Rashidi. And please don't forget that there are book signings on the ground floor of this building. So for myself, thank you very much.